Welcome to another exciting, fun-filled and action-packed edition of The Life of Brian. Dot, dot, dot. Mannix, that is. I'm Kevin Hillier. You're Brian Mannix. I believe I am. You uh, are. Kev, and here I am, um, believing I am. Yes. And we're here with thanks to Murcotts. It's murcotts.edu.au. Murcotts Driving Excellence, one three hundred triple five five seven six. And we're very happy with our lineup today. Oh, what a lineup! It is a great lineup. Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. Woohoo! Rocky Burnett. Well, I thought it was Rocky Balboa. No, no, no. So what? I'm not on the show today. <laughs> it's Rocky Burnett. So it's all a lie. And part 375 of the Mark Opitz interview. I used to be judging a million dollars worth of equipment. <laughs> now I can't get a job. And, uh, and we still have much more of Mark Opitz to bring you because he's a man who has done everything with everybody in this industry in this country. He has indeed. And then some. Right. Um, but uh, we're going to uh, get into Rocky Burnett a little later on. Oh, Rocky's now, great. Now, if you go on Rocky Burnett, uh, Rocky Burnett, Tied a Toe on the Line was a massive, massive song. Massive, massive hit, Kev. Big, big song. Big so song. Uh, we tracked him down, uh, one of the, one of the, I guess, one of the great one-hit wonders of the 80s. Well, I, I think as far as Australia was concerned, he was pretty much. Oh, no, he had a couple of other things. Yeah, I Falling think. in Love and a couple of other things that we'll talk to him about. But, uh, yeah. yeah, did not much happened after Tied a Toe on the no. Line. The story behind Tied a Toe on the Line and a major oh, a controversy. Oh, oh, oh. A major controversy. We don't we don't deal a lot in controversy on this program. But this is. By geez, we got a good one. This is red hot today. <laughs> Rocky remembers a particular incident from his uh, visit to Australia to do uh, television and promotional stuff that will he, shock you. He likes everybody in Australia except, except yes, dot, enough. dot, dot. Tell you what, I had a busy week this week. What did you do? Well, I went off to the climate change protest and that was good. And then the next day I went what? to the free refugees protest. Right. And I went up to Sydney. And I got some big sticks and made like a big teepee thing and I put myself in the middle of the road for climate change again. Right. That. Then I came down, had a time for a quick Black Lives Matter protest and then I quickly joined the uh, Free Britney, Britney Spears oh, protest. Of course you did. And then I went through <laughs> on a protest, protesting against protests. Right. So it's been very busy. A very big week. <laughs> Free Britney. <laughs> Britney. I don't know. She's just lost control of her money. Isn't that in the Seven Eleven stores? A big sign, "Free Britney" with every large Coke or something like that. Shouldn't it be? <laughs> shouldn't that be how the sign goes? Something like that. No. Oh no. That, that, that's a sad story. It is. It's a very sad story. Um, I'm not sure that's going to going to end well. Well, we should get her on the show and find out. All right. Maybe we will. I think she's doing sixty minutes before us. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I think Why so. Why would she do 60 minutes ahead of us? Oh, I don't know. Oh, she... Liz Hayes is more of an investigative journalist than you are, I suppose. Oh, I'm a better root. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, let's go straight to rock and roll. Robin Zander from Cheap Tricks going to join us, but to put you in the mood, let's have a listen. Thanks to Murcott's uh, Driving Excellence. Let's have a listen to Cheap Trick. It's their new album, which yes. we'll talk about. They're touring, and this is off the new album. This is called Light My Fire. All right. We.
If you are the host, please announce yourself. Uh, hello, it's uh, Kevin Hillier and Brian Mannix speaking. Hello, Brian. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yeah, how are you going? Hey, how are you doing, Brian? Oh, right, where's Kev? Is Kev there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Robin, thanks for joining us, mate. Congratulations on this Cheap Trick album. We love it. Yeah. Oh, thank um, you very much. Every song on it is a winner. Um, there's no weak links in the whole thing. And um, you've got a bit of a Beatle influence in a few of them there and a bit of a Lennon influence. I wonder, how long did it take you to record it? Where did you record it and who produced it? Well, uh, Julian Raymond produced it, who produced our last two records that we made since uh, Rockford. He produced all the latest ones, including our Christmas album. So he, he's, he's done a lot of work for us. I've known him since the middle 80s. Um, he's a really good guy. He's kind of like a fifth member of our band now. And we recorded the record in different places. We recorded it uh, in Nashville and in Los Angeles. And uh, some of the demo work was done in our home. But uh, about half the album was, was uh, written while we were in the studio which is always good because then the spontaneity is there and it shows, I think, the energy level seems to be high uh, when you're in the studio writing. So, I, you know, uh, it was done about a year and a half ago. So we're well, very anxious to get out and play some of the tracks. Oh, yeah, it's some absolute rippers that are going to kill live. And um, you're coming out to Australia. That's great. You'll be the first international band in about 12 months to come out here. So that's great. Good on you. Yeah. We planned it that way. <laughs> it would be the first international band to play us. <laughs> well, it's going to be very exciting. You know, the cover you did of Give Me Some Truth. Now, gee, that's a really great version of Give Me Some Truth. I reckon it's better than Lennon's. What made you decide to record that? Well, it was pretty much the state of our uh, political affairs here that have been for the last four years, you know. Um, yeah. The public has sort of been lied to by seemingly everyone. That song in particular uh, was written during the Nixon era here in the States. It means more now than it did then. Well, it's a great version of it, really great. Well, thank you. Hey, Robin, uh, this is your 20th studio album. Uh, the, the the buzz that you had, I, I get the, the impression that the enthusiasm you guys have for your own music is fantastic and, and it's never kind of soured over 20 albums and 20 million sales worldwide and, you know, 40 years in the biz. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to explain that, really. I think it's just that we love music. We love what we do. We're held together by uh, by some sort of mysterious musical superglue. <laughs> it's hard to explain, but we still enjoy what we're doing. And it's almost like, uh, why change? You know, if it's not broken, why fix it? Exactly. Brian's a singer as well. I mean, your voice on this album, uh, whether you're talking about the kind of ballady, uh, the stuff that you've, you've done on this, like And So It Goes, and into the really powerhouse rock and roll stuff. Brian and I were just talking before we got connected to you about your ability to sing a sweet song and then go bang and knock the roof off the joint. Well, I've always, you know, I've always admired uh, Australian singers for that same reason. I don't know what it is. It's just something that's in- inherent in me that I grew up with and, my heroes that I always loved were very diverse, you know, to listen back in the days to Steve Marriott, you know, uh, listening to people like Rod Stewart and uh, people like John Lennon and Paul McCartney and, you know, Mick Jagger. There's all kinds of influences that are kind of sewn into my soul. I feel like some kind of weird actor that takes on a song like I would a, a movie script. As a singer, I hope you understand what I'm saying. You know, I feel... Yeah, I feel like that's the best way to get the lyric across is to yeah. sort of become part of that song as much as you can. Well, every song's, you know, sort of got some kind of story to it. So I think it's a good description to say that it's sort of an acting role because you're kind of living the lyrics, you know, trying to make them sound as sincere and believable as you can. So, yeah, you know, I think that's an excellent description of yeah. singing. So are you still, uh, fans still out playing or do you guys, uh, you, yeah, are you, we, I still I know play that, a lot. But uh, my band from the 80s, we only get together about once a year or twice a year. So, but yeah, I'm still playing. It's, um, you know, it's been hard with COVID. What's it been like over in America with COVID? Has she been able to do anything or have you just been sitting at home waiting to, to get to be over? I'm just sitting at home. I like to say I finally got a chance to meet my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're worried that, you know, the yep. fact that you got you guys have toured forever and a day and touring's been such a part of your life that you got off the road that you'd kind of get used to being not on the road? No, I don't think 
<laughs> that's going to ever happen yeah. to us. We, we like playing. We've always been a live group. You know, we like playing out. Yeah. How many dates are you playing in Australia? Is, is it, will you have to quarantine for two weeks or because you've got the vaccination? Yeah, you won't we have quarantined for two weeks. Right. Where do you guys live? Uh, Melbourne. Melbourne? Uh, Melbourne, yeah. Okay, Melbourne. so there's a lot of people that have yachts in Melbourne, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe we could quarantine on one of those yachts. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good place to quarantine. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's nice just shot. an idea. You don't have to knock yourself out about it. Maybe. A nice yacht in Sydney Harbour would be the way to go. Just cruise around. <laughs> Robin, I wanted to ask you the uh, the hat thing. I was I was watching an interview you did. The the hat thing uh, started. Did that start with your dad? Yeah, he always dressed up. He'd get up in the morning. He was an iron worker that would go weld every day. Worked at a place called Ironworks, which is you know near Rockford. And when you when you drive into Rockford, there'd be a sign there that said, Rockford, the screw capital of the world. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> because they made screws. <laughs> we was a different meeting in Australia. <laughs> he got up, though, he would, he would dress up, and he always wore a hat. And I always admired that and thought, you know, you know, nobody around him would do that. Our neighbors didn't do that, and he would do that. And I just uh, looked up to him. I started wearing hats. A nice, oh. nice nod to your dad. That's good. Yeah. The early beginnings of your uh, musical career, you you were kind of knocking around as a as a trio with your brothers. Is that right? No, that's not right. No. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I started out the only one in my family that played. I bought a, a set of drums when I was like eight years old. I stole money out of my mom's purse until I had enough money to go to Sears and get myself a drum kit. And then, um, you know, um, I, my first band I put together when I was 13, we call ourselves the destination. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, I took, I picked up the guitar and started, you know, uh, playing around and stuff with a friend of mine whose name was Brian Beebe. And we would, uh, hitchhike across the country playing, you know, little coffee shops and stuff. You know, this is the early 70s, yep. 71, 72. Was that Butterscotch Sunday? Was that the name of the group that you and your friend had? That's right. How did you know that? Oh, well, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of research on you. I've got your brothers singing with your brothers wrong, but I, I, I knew about some of your early bands. <laughs> Butterscotch <laughs> Sunday, that's right. Uh, yeah, we, then, you know, I, I went to Scotland for a little while. Tried to play my music over there for five records, and they basically told me to go home. <laughs> and uh, so I did. <laughs> I went home, and I, I uh, you know, traveled a little more. Played up in uh, this uh, bar called the Lookout Lounge in Wisconsin Dells for two summers, and then, uh, uh, you know, I had been in bands off and on with Bunny, uh, the drummer, yep, and yeah, uh, the original singer for Cheap Trick, Zeno. I was in a band with him, too, him and his sister, before Cheap Trick. And then uh, Zeno decided to go on and pursue some other band that he was in love with up in Minneapolis. And uh, I got Bunny, gave me a call and said, uh, you know, you are you ready to join a real band? <laughs> uh. I said, yeah, let's give it a go. You know, we rehearsed for three days, and we were off running after that. Wow. wow. Fantastic. And 20, 20 million uh, sales later, and a, and a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which seemed to take forever for them to actually acknowledge that you should have been in it. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, the first five years go by after you're eligible, and you're thinking, you know, we got a chance to get in the Hall of Fame, and then 10 years goes by, and, well, maybe not. And 15 years goes by, and you think, well, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about anyway. <laughs> so, and then, then you get the phone call, and all is forgiven. <laughs> but, you know, more than the Hall of Fame, though, I, I get to live real close to Brian Johnson right here in Florida. Oh, wow. Wow. You probably hear him asking for the salt to be tossed and be that loud. Pass the salt! Well, I've, I've bowed down many times in passing, you know, that's, so who are the singers? Who are the singers that that, that knock you out? I mean, we we've, we've been listening to this album and and marveling at your vocal prowess. Who, who's whose vocal prowess do you admire, Robin? Uh, over the years, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, my son, yeah. Robin Taylor Zander dot com. You 
got to check him out. Okay. Okay. He, he's wonderful. He's a great songwriter. He just finished his record. That's robintaylorzander.com. Right. Um, uh, uh, Matt, I grew up up listening to people like uh, Steve Marriott and Rod Stewart and the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, you know, and all that. The Kings, Ray Davies. uh, But they're not really necessarily these singers. They're more, I don't know how to describe it. You know, they're more not singers necessarily. They're um, like Bob Dylan is not really a singer. No. But he sings. Yeah, he does. So when people ask you that question, it's like, well, you know, if I said, well, my favorite singer is Bob Dylan, that doesn't mean he's a great singer. That just means that I love him. (laughs) Yeah, I I like Lou Reed a lot, but he's not a great singer, but he's got a sound that's unique. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's say, um, well, the singer from the Angels was cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was really cool. I mean, he, he was this tall, lanky guy that looked like a flamingo on the way he moved around. Yeah. Uh, but he had a great voice, you know. Yeah, you toured with the Angels quite a bit, didn't you? Yes, we did. Did they tour America with you? Or did you play with them yeah. in Australia? Yeah. And, yeah. Or both? Yes. We ran into them all over the place, really. You know, but um, mostly it was just Australia. Right. Well, you tour here Fair this enough. time. You're going to be playing uh, Rose Tattoo. I know as one of the local bands who are on uh, on the bill right around Australia for the uh, the tour that you're doing. So that'll be an interesting uh, introduction. Have you have you run across Angry Anderson in your in your travels in Australia at all, Robin? Not really. That's that's why it's going to be interesting. Uh, I've never seen the band Bush either. That that'll be oh, okay. Kind of weird. And uh, I don't know who the singer in uh, Stone Temple Pilots is these days. Yeah, no, neither do I. So we'll see what that is. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, it must be it must be uh, amazing for you to think uh, you know the band formed back in the sort of that early part of the seventies, around nineteen seventy four, and here you are in two thousand and twenty one, uh, still as strong as ever, and still going really well. And the, the great chemistry between you and Rick and Tom, and uh, that is still still as strong as it's ever been. Uh, hopefully, it'll continue on for a couple more years. You know, we're uh, we're still going at it. Yeah, absolutely. Well. We appreciate that you are still going at it and really look forward to seeing you in Australia and um, hearing you play some songs from the new album. It's just such a great album. Yes, you bet. You know, we're, our set is going to include new songs from the new album and we change our set every night when we play, but we always include some of the things that were, you know, on the radio in past years in Australia, yes. which, uh, you know, if you want my love and, and, uh, uh, surrender and dream police and I want you to want me. Oh, you know, we'll we'll do those also. And yeah. maybe a couple tracks, you know, deep cuts from other albums. We've got a lot to choose from. Yeah. I guess the initial success of the band was built on that live Budokan album, which, you, which must, uh, you know, uh, still to this day stands up beautifully. Even though I know you guys didn't like it that much yeah, at the time, it, did it, you? It, no. <laughs> we <laughs> didn't. We didn't like the song quality. We didn't like the cover. Uh, manager said, don't worry, nobody's going to ever see this but the Japanese audience. And, um, you know, it was just one of those things where it went to Europe as the, the UK company picked it up in, uh, in yellow vinyl, first of all things. Yeah. And then, you know, then it, it, it went to uh, Canada and it was double platinum in Canada before they even released it in the States. Wow. And I, I can't, to this day, I still can't understand how it became... Uh, such a phenomenon, yeah. you know. It was just—I think the energy of it was more important the way it sounded. Yeah, and you're still bouncing around with that same energy in 2021. We look forward to seeing you here in Australia, Robin. Thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, great to have a chat. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Robin. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for putting up with me, and I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all when we come over.
Cheap Trick. It's a really good album. It's really good. It is a very good album. Really well produced. Yes, it is. Great and their guitar sounds. They're touring. Uh, they'll be touring with Bush, the Stone Temple Pilots, and as you heard, uh, Rose Tattoo. So it's going to be a massive oh, show. Right. Uh, kicks off at the end of April, so at the end of this month uh, in Wollongong, and uh, they'll be all around the country. So if you want uh, details, Underneath the Southern Stars is the name of the tour. So it's underneaththesouthernstars.com.au. And uh, that uh, Cheap Trick album, uh, check it out because it really is very, very good and it is available now. Now. All right? So uh, grab a hold of that and thanks to uh, Robin Zander for joining us. Good on you, Robin. It was good. Now. Say hello to Batman. <laughs> uh, now, uh, interview number two on the program, we've got Mark Opitz coming up with uh, the third part of uh, him talking this time about In Excess and about, oh, yeah. uh, about one of their massively big albums that he produced. Yeah. But now we thought uh, we kind of tracked this bloke down via the social media platforms. Yeah. And then just one day when Brian was in the studio here with me, we just rang the number and thought if he answers. He answers. We'll talk to him. If he doesn't, well, we, we miss out. Man. But we rang and, and he answered. And have a listen what followed when we caught up with the one and only, the man who brought tighter toe on the line to the world, Rocky Burnett. Hello. Hello, is that Rocky Burnett? This is Rocky. Hello, Rocky. It's Kevin Hillier and Brian Mannix calling you from Melbourne, Australia. That's great. What's going on? Oh, we wanted to find out what's going on with you. Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm just uh bad thing when you live as long as I am, you end up with uh, diabetes, COPT, and art disease. So I'm really kind of, did I say art disease? Oh. <laughs> just trying to hang in there, Dave, you know, on a daily basis. But uh, I still find time to write. And I just got off the phone with my cousin, Billy, uh, Billy Burnett. He just got a Rod Stewart cut. So Rod recorded one of his songs. So right. Uh, we're looking forward to that coming out. But uh, uh, other than that, how did you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, so so you're still you're still writing and recording. It's been uh, unfortunately your career has been kind of dotted with uh, the failure of record companies to be able to stay afloat when they've released your your material. Well, you know, I, I had the uh, I had the really good salad days there for a while, and then. When I, I, I when I saw the writing on the wall with that, I just went back to doing my dad's stuff, to all the rockabilly stuff, yeah. not the pop stuff so much, but the '53, '54, '55 rock and roll trio stuff with Train kept a rolling and tear it up. And I did those things for the next 25 years with uh, with Paul Burleson and Scotty Moore and DJ wow. Fontana. I got to work with all the old guys. Wow. Got to go all over the world. The biggest uh, regret I had was. Uh, not getting back to uh, Australia one more time. And because I, you know, like my dad before me, he wanted to move all of us down there. Wow. So, Is that right? uh, after he got back on his last trip. So uh, I thought I was going to be Australian for a while. Oh. What, are, what are your memories of when you came out? Because you did count down a couple of TV shows and stuff. What are your memories of your trip here? Oh, geez. Just, uh, you know, wanting to see the, the outback and not being able to. Uh-huh. Uh, wanting to go to Ayers Rock and. Not making it out there. Uh, I remember. I remember eating barramundi like every other night because I loved it so much. Oh yeah. And uh, we've got a little lake here now that raises it, and we can go out and catch them and bring them home. So uh, we get to eat the barramundi here uh, a little bit. Uh, but everything about I loved everything about Australia, especially the people. It was uh, it was a bit of uh, you know so much coastline. Here you got people on top of people, and of course I've lived most of my life in Los Angeles. But uh, you know it was great to go to a beach and not see anybody on it for a couple of miles. <laughs> yeah. But man, I could go on and on about uh, Australia. I loved Australia. I loved New Zealand. New Zealand was beautiful. But uh, Australia had a special thing, and it was mostly because of the uh, the people. I found the people there to be uh, you know very. Uh, I got to meet Rod Taylor. Oh yeah, uh, All right. which was which was a big. I was a big fan of his because of the sci-fi things he had done. You know, like the Time Machine and uh, yeah. the Birds and all that stuff. And he had a long he had a long good life after after his acting career. So, uh, uh, but I, I got a big kick. I, I remember doing a uh, a TV show with Don Lane. 
Oh, yeah. And getting in a fight with his sidekick. I got in a big fight with his sidekick. B- Bert Newton. Bert something or other. Bert Newton, yeah. What happened there? Yeah, Bert Newton, yeah. He got, uh, I was in the same room with him and Vincent Price, and uh, I guess I interrupted him while he was talking, and he got uh, he got really belligerent about it. So only bad time I had in, in while I was in Australia, but uh, uh, I love Don Lane. Don Lane was a friend of my uncle, so. Oh, okay. I had a good rapport with him, but Don but uh, Bert that, that that night wouldn't even introduce me as being on the show. So wow, wow. I I kind of I kind of it's the only guy that, you know. I, there's an old saying uh, that Will Rogers had a saying. I never met met a man I didn't like. That same goes with me, except for Bert Newton. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Rocky, your song "Tighter Toe on the Line" was a massive hit in this country. <laughs> it was a good one. I wished I had about ten more of them. <laughs> How many countries did uh, did you tour, or did you you know was it released in, and um, did you go to? Well, you know it 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 immediately came out in England, yep, and it hit the charts. But then there was some kind of problem with the union thing. It ended up in uh, Holland, and it became the number one record in Holland and in Sweden, and then all throughout Europe and down to South Africa, down in Australia, New Zealand it was a big record, and Asia it was a big record, South America. Then it came to America. And uh, it was wedged between a Paul McCartney song and some Kenny Rogers song. And I beat them all out and got a top five record here in America. Yay. And then we had Fallen in Love and Baby Tonight and a few other things that came out. But uh, nothing that ever did what uh, Toe on the Line did. And I had the all-girl band in my video, which was kind of uh, that was cool. the beginning. I mean, Robert Palmer and a few others would do one after that. And uh, uh, that one particular Toe on the Line video with all the girls. We got from a ballerina class at UCLA, the college at UCLA, and when everybody got the water turn, a two of those girls got hurt. That water came on too fast because we were actually at the fire department where they trained firemen, and that was a high-pressure hose, and uh, uh, the first girls that got hit, but when it hit me, it knocked me up against the wall, you know, so... Uh, Keith McMillan did that video, and he had done all the uh, Paul McCartney videos up to that point, and he just got a little too zealous in his uh <laughs> in his directing there and uh yeah people got hurt i'm actually on that uh, uh that uh, fire engine going down hollywood boulevard and uh, people were saying who's that crazy long-haired nut driving down the road like <laughs> yeah, that you but did, uh, you did have the you did have the mullet didn't you, you had the the big long hair yeah sti- yeah i had the long hair and uh went that direction when i started doing the rockabilly thing i had to go back to the old pompadour you know <laughs> Which I actually preferred, but uh, back in those days, because uh, I, I did the fire engine right down the middle. I think it was Melbourne or Sydney. I can't remember where it was. But my hair was so long, I used to have to part it to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Rocky, is it true? Is it true that you wrote "Tired of Telling the Line" in twenty minutes, or is that a bit? Of, is that a myth? No, it didn't take much longer than that because. Uh, uh, just a few hours before that, we were coming back from the Palomino Club in uh, North Hollywood, and we got pulled over by the policeman. I wasn't driving, but my friend was driving, and he'd been drinking a little bit. So they asked us, asked us to toe the line to see if we were walking straight. Oh. And uh, finally, they asked us, you know, to keep doing it. My friend was able to do it. He'd only had a couple of beers, but they kept asking me to do it. And I said, hey, guys. Tired of towing the line here. Let us go home. <laughs> so me and Ron Coleman came home, and we wrote the song. I mean, it just came out. It just came out just that fast, and uh, we made a demo of it the next day. And when Bill House heard, he goes, he goes, we got to find a single for the other side of uh, this record we're doing. So I played him uh, a bunch of songs, and one of them was towing the line. He says, "That's the one." We, we we cut the record here, and the guys over in England heard it. Because I was signed over in England. I wasn't signed in America. Okay. I couldn't get a deal in America. Either could my cousin Billy. We were trying to sell the Rockabilly thing, and nobody wanted to buy it. They said, get back there and do your own stuff. So we tried to do that. And then after our records came out a year or two later, here come the Stray Cats and Robert Gordon and all these Rockabilly guys. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, the rockabilly thing starts to sell again after 30 years. But, wow. You know, so, it's just the, the, the music business. Now the music business is so, it's so different now that, uh, you know, a couple of things on YouTube and you're flying again. So, I yeah. don't know. We're still having a lot of fun. 
We get to see a lot of folks. You know, now's the time when they're putting us in the Rockabilly Hall of Fame and the uh, the Clown Shoes Hall of Fame and all these other Hall of Fames you got going. <laughs> and just this week, you know, I've been asked to do a couple of more albums. It's just that my health, here's the thing, and if there's any kids listening out there, you know, I smoke cigarettes. And I was, you know, I was really arrogant about it. And I, uh, I, I, like my mom before me, I keep, I kept smoking cigarettes and, uh, it got me. Yeah. It got me. It killed, uh, killed my lungs and it, uh, bye kitty. The lady that is helping me is just leaving right now. She's been working with me all day trying to, you know, I do the, uh, COPD exercises. Yeah. I'm on the oxygen machine 24 hours a day now. Oh, okay. And, uh, I got the heart pills, but you know, even with all that, I, you know, I've had, I've really had a great life. Got my, I got my kids and my grandkids and I've got two great grandsons. Wow. And I still get to go out and do a little fishing with them. If I take enough oxygen tanks with me and I'm still writing, I'm still singing. I'd like to be able to get out there and do some shows, but, uh, you know, just, unless some kind of miracle happens, uh. As a matter of fact, I was going down there to Loyola, uh, waiting for see if I could get that heart lung transplant. And one night it came in somebody with uh, my blood type, and and they might be able to make a go of it. And you know, there was me, you know, sixty five years old then, a couple of years ago, and a couple of eleven year old kids. And I said, man, I. And in fact, I get kind of the clump there just thinking about it. Just you know. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to get a transplant with these two little kids with the rest of their lives, you know, in front of them. So I just packed up all my stuff and came home and I haven't tried to do that since, but, uh, I don't know, maybe they'll come up with some kind of way to clean your lungs out of all that garbage. And, uh, I might get a few extra years out of it, but you know, listen, guys, I I just want to tell you that, uh, I grew up in a rock and roll family. My dad, my mom, we packed up all of our stuff. Memphis had become kind of like a one-man town. It was an Elvis town. So we packed up everything and came out here, and my dad and my uncle found out where Ricky Nelson lives, so they went over there and played him a bunch of songs. All those songs they played him, he recorded. They all became top ten records. So here we are in L.A. My dad and Dorsey are writing hits for all these people and and then coming out with records of their own. My uncle had Tall Oak Tree and Hey Little One. My dad had You're 16 and Dreaming and... And my dad started his own record company. Unfortunately, you know, my dad was killed in a tragic boat accident, but we picked up the baton. Me and Billy and the rest of the kids and the family kept singing. We got to play. I, I got out on the Tusk tour with Fleetwood Mac, opening for them. Wow. Introduced Billy to Mick and the guys. And a few years later, he's in Fleetwood Mac uh, doing the lead singing for him. And uh, yeah. so, you know, we've, we've had a great life. You know, my dad was instrumental in... Uh, starting Gene Vincent's career and a lot of other people's career. Dorsey found Stevie Wonder singing down on a little pier in Santa Monica and brought him into Motown. So we've left our mark. Absolutely. And we've written a lot of great songs. We've had a lot of great gigs. And we've tried to, we've tried our best to give as much as we took. So uh, we're proud of that. And we're just, uh, you know, I don't have any complaints. Well, you should be very proud of it. It's been a great career. And if you're going to write another some new songs, I suggest you get pulled over by the police beforehand because <laughs> this seems to bring out the yeah, best well, in your work. <laughs> yeah, it helps. Well, maybe maybe uh, a night in jail will do me some good. <laughs> <laughs> the songs you could write from that. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Hey, Rocky, thanks so much for What's talking it? to us, for taking our call. We really appreciate it. So I've, been, I've been talking to you on Messenger well, on Facebook, but it's it's great to actually have a chat. We are great in talking to you guys. I hope you stay safe through this pandemic. And God bless you guys and God bless us all, everyone. Good on you, Rocky. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate. You're a champion. Thank you, guys.
There is, uh, Rocky, there is Tie to Toe on the line. Oh, what a song. That will be in your head now for the next 16 days because it's been in mind for the last 16 days. Yeah, uh, dude. I can't get that out of my head. And the and the film clip with the... The, 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 the fire hose. The fire hose, the all girls. that stuff. Yes, all oh, that stuff. Oh, and they got hurt. Now, in that interview, you heard Rocky talk about a a major confrontation mm. and a... And a, 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 a you know, big celebrity moment that he had yep. here in Australia on the Don Lane show with Bert Newton and they didn't get on. No. Now, we offered Bert the the right of reply because we thought that was only fair and we're into fairness here. So we uh, we did get in touch with uh, with Bert and Patty and uh, uh, told them the story that Rocky had told and said, uh, if you would like to come on uh, this program and uh, more than happy to give you the right of reply yeah. to give your version of the story, they declined the offer. Oh. Now, we've actually tried a couple of times to get Bert to come on the program just as a yeah. guest because, you know, we have great Australians on this program. Absolutely. Like, you know, Dick Smith and Dawn Fraser and all those sort of yeah. people. So we've asked a couple of times for that. That hasn't happened. But then uh, when there's story that Rocky told us, mm. we thought it was only fair that Bert get the right of reply and uh, and he declined the opportunity to come on. Well, he reckons that Vincent Price ended up pulling a knife on him <laughs> as well. <laughs> it, it was a really bad day for Rocky. Yeah, the blue with Bert and Vincent Price is... Not angry, <laughs> and Don and Don did a James Randy with him and told, get yeah. off, get off my boat, get off the set. <laughs> <laughs> so there, you go. that's our controversy uh, for this week. But we did give Ooh. the opportunity for right of reply. Hope you enjoyed the Rocky Burnett interview. Sure, you're going to enjoy this. Mm. It starts with my idiotic question. Yeah, you know the one that you you gave me grief about last time when I said. And you'll hear it in a, just a second when I asked, you know, when did In Excess come into your wheelhouse? Oh. That's what I asked and that's that's where the interview starts. This is part three. Probably Australia's most famous record producer, I would yes, imagine. Yes, I imagine. Certainly one of the most successful. This is part three of Mark Opitz. When did In Excess pop into your wheelhouse? Well, that's later, you see, because it, 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 the Warner Brothers is really interesting because you've got to remember the first, you know, the first acts that I signed were I signed a band called Crossfire, who were a jazz act, but I signed them purely because I was not only a good band, I knew they weren't going to be commercially successful, but I knew that other musicians around the country would say, fuck, this guy's serious, you know, he's signing proper people. And so then Richard Clapton, I signed him, I did an album of him called The Great Escape. Good album. Uh, which worked really well for him. And then I did, a, uh, you know, had, you know, best years of our lives, stuff like that. Yeah. And then the studio owner of Paradise, Billy Field, came to me and he said, "Look, I've got, I've been recording my own album. Would you, could, could, would you guys release it?" And then I had to listen to it. And I said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll release it, but we'll lease it from you for, you know, we'll give you twenty percent of the profits, and I'll give you two thousand bucks up front as an advance." He said, "Sure." The album went through the roof. Yeah, Bad yeah. habits. You know, yeah, yeah. It went through the roof. Yeah. And you were in love with me. It's a great song. You were in love with me was the, the reason that I. Signed the bloody thing in the first place. Yeah, good song. Yeah. And um, it, it just killed. I was on a roll to get out of at the end of the Warner Brothers story. Even though there's a lot more, I signed it to vinyls on, on the back of a, a, a tape I heard for Boys in Town. But it was the end of Boys in Town that got me. And then I, I you know, again being uh, able to throw my weight around studio, while I, I, I did what I did with the Angels, and I just kept putting them in the studio, going, working, working, until we came up with a, a, a bunch of songs, and I really liked Boys in Town, but I just wanted to get a really good version. I was going to bed one night with a notepaper, I'd fallen asleep, and what came to me was the arrangement for Boys in Town. Got out of bed, wrote down the arrangement, got up the next day, rang the, rang the band, said, yeah, yeah, book the studio, bang, we're in the studio, you know, let's go. Because obviously I had the power to do that and uh, put together and got this killer track, Boys in Town, along with a few others. So I needed a vehicle because they were a brand new band, didn't have an audience. And then along came a, an old school friend of mine. Look, my brother's working for um, uh, New South Wales Film Corporation and they're backing a movie called Monkey Grip. And, yeah. and the director wants you to, to do the produce a soundtrack for it. And by the way, have you got a band with a girl singer we could use? <laughs> and, I, and I'm going... Are you kidding? Yeah. Where did this come out? This is like from heaven. And I said, well, matter of fact, I do. And they said, well, it'd be great, but we'd love to use the band and just use one of the actors as the bass player. And I said, yeah, but I'll, I'll give you the band on one condition. So what's that? That you shoot the video for the song with the original bass player, but shoot me the video. And so I got a full film crew to shoot the Boys in Town video for free. 
and uh, wasn't the original bass Mark? Wasn't the original bass player Jeremy Paul who was an air supply? It was. It was his band. Yeah, that's right. And and so you know, I only signed the band. You know, when the band came in for their signing session, they came in with a different drummer, and I said, I pulled Jeremy Paul aside and said, "Mate, the one the reason I got you in here is because the energy of this track is so good, and the way that the drummer goes out." Finishes the last uh, 24 bars, it just really gives it this impact. I said, I'll sign you guys, but get the old drummer back. So they had to sack the new drummer they got, which I oh. <laughs> and, and came back with Richard Harvey, and I said, You're in. At this stage, so that was still with Warner Brothers, and we put an EP out with Monkey Group, killed it, you know, Boys in Town all over the radio. Yep. And anyway, then Colchester decided they wanted to do uh, uh, Sex Animals album. They'd, they'd done a new deal with Warner Brothers on the strength of Beast, where they would lease the album back, still go through Warner Brothers, but not be under the old record deal of record company pays for everything and give you shit for. And um, so, that, so the manager director came to me and said, oh, by the way, we want you to produce the new Cultures album, which we don't necessarily own anymore, but we're not going to be giving you royalties. You'll just have to do it for your wage. And I said, well, fuck you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're not going to tell me how I make my money and, and, and how I go with my career. So I resigned on the spot and did a deal with Chisel to do Bow River. During Bow River, to answer your question, Kevin, Kevin you know, I was, I was playing pinball with um, Don Walker and Richard Clapton, you know, in the studio at the same time. The technician, Dean, I can't remember his name, walked in with one of his mates who was in the band, and it's Kirk Pengelly from In Excess. And he says, oh, hi, you know, my name's Kirk, I'm from In Excess, and just wanted to say, you know, how much we love what you're doing with what you did, and... Hopefully one day you can work with us. And I said, yeah, 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 great. You know, sure, whoever you are. You know, um, yeah, yeah. You're a nice guy, you know. And gave good words of encouragement, as you do. And that was it. And that's how I met Kirk. And then went on and did uh, Circus Animals. And they were short of songs, weren't they? They weren't short of songs. They were short of singles. Because Don had said to me, and he denies it say, that they didn't want to do another pop album. And I said, he wasn't a pop album. Mate. It was an album that met the masses. You know, I kept your integrity for fuck's sake. Look at it, you're playing live. You know, you've got big crowds. You saw five times platinum on this. This will be your fourth album, your second with me. I'm still going to have power of veto over everything. You guys come up with the rest of the songs, leave me in charge of the singles and let me do what I want. And they said, fair enough. Got all the demos from Don and there wasn't a single on there. You know, I didn't demo them in Trafalgar, but nothing going on. And then Jimmy says on stage, oh, we've got a new song called Blue Parrot or something like that. We played it, and and um, they played uh, Forever Now, a seven minute version, and I, and I literally dropped to my knees. I said, "Thank there is a God." <laughs> that, you know, it was a, it, admittedly it was a seven minute version, but but you could hear what was going on. You know, and then I went backstage and said, "Steve, that's uh, you saved my ass, mate. That's the second single." And then he said, "Oh, you like that one? Have a listen to this one. This is the one. This is a, a, a one." I call when the war is over. Yeah. <laughs> and so he played it when they went. I said, you're kidding. You know, I said, right, that's, a, that's a third single, not a second, a third. Uh, and I was still looking for a first, but, you know, Jimmy came uh, came to the, my rescue there because they'd been to America for an unsuccessful foray, and he wrote, you've got nothing I want. Yeah. It, 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 it was about the American record company, you know. And, and it was an angry song. And so, um, oh, was it so we record that, and I knew, and I knew that was going to be the first single because it's Cold Chisel. They're a live band. I want thumbs on seats. I want everyone to go to their back. And so you got nothing I want. Went out first single, forever now third single. And then when the war is over, the, uh, third. And, you know, we even had Bow River up our sleeve, you know. More importantly, the, the band were learning this uh, recording craft. And, you know, and Don was coming up with some pretty esoteric songs like When the Numbers Fall, Taipan, you know, Letter to Alan all that sort of stuff, and Hound Dog. And so they all went in as well. And, and we made a pretty decent album out of that from there. And I'm out of Warner Brothers. So then I get a call from Chris Murphy, who's managing in excess by this time. And he said, Mark, uh, we, I want you to, we've signed a deal at last with Warner Brothers. We would have signed with you. I tried to sign them, but two days before I tried to sign when I became head of A&R, Michael Browning had signed them to Deluxe. And so I was, Literally two days too late. They would have definitely gone with me for sure. And so they did two albums with Deluxe that sort of like underneath the colours and I think the first album was just called In Excess. 
but he sent me three songs, and one was called Black and White, one was called Johnson's Aeroplane, and one was called The One Thing. Uh-huh. He said, now I want you to pick a song. I put them on my tape recorder and play around with them a bit, and Black and White was killer, but it was going to be a bit too straight up for him straight away. I needed something pretty accessible, and, and The One Thing was great, except it had all these little funny musical bits in it after the bridges and the choruses where it all so very old and accessible. Go, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, ee, 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 you know, all the <laughs> music would creep into it, which would stop the feel. And so I did the one thing with them. It was, the band were unbelievably good in the studio. Like Tim Farris, incredible. He was, he'd sit in the control room with me because I wasn't using them a lot at the beginning. And so he kept saying, Mark, sound great. This is sounding fantastic. You're doing a great job. I'm ready to go in anytime you want, Chief. I'm ready to go in. But that's the attitude of the that was the attitude of the band in a nutshell. But everyone didn't matter who did what. It was a, it was the common good to was was the whole idea, and that really impressed me. So I finished the one thing, released the one thing, went really really well. Anyway, they went around the world and spoke to all these producers. And every producer that they, they, they played them the one thing, and every producer that they played, said, who the fuck produced that? <laughs> and, and, and they said, oh, this guy, you're crazy. You should be sticking with that guy, you know. So they came back from their big worldwide trip looking for a producer and cap in hand said, oh, everyone says we should use you, so would you do yeah. our, <laughs> our album? So, yeah, I said, for sure, you know, and uh, and that was Shibuya Bar. And, and that was really interesting because, again, we had half any song, songs, so we did a lot in the studio. But one song that really impressed me when I was at Wollongong Workers Club that they played live was a song called Don't Change. Oh, I love it. And yeah. And and and, and so I said, gee, that's a key song. You know, and I've already got the one thing uh, um, as a single that's going to be on the album. I recorded that at least three, four times a week and I just couldn't get the best, the, that feel that I'd heard in Wollongong. I just couldn't get it. And I finally got this one that was so close, not funny to that original live feel that I heard, you know, and then I had that and when it came to the vocals, I'd already sort of shown Michael what he could do with vocals by uh, on a, a song called The Jam Song, which is, you know, it's on, on the album, not a huge popular song with everybody, but it was very important to Michael in terms of singing because he wasn't that confident about singing it. And one night, just to me in the studio, I'm, and he said, I, I, we've got to do some vocal soon. He said, well, I, he said, why don't you just go on, on Jan song? Give me five takes. Don't worry. Just sing from the heart, mate. That's all you got to do. Don't worry about how it's going to sound, whether it's good melody, anything. Just but sing it to me. Tell me a story. Make me believe it. That's all you got to do. And so, you know, it was just he and I. And he went in there and he sang five takes. I said, mate, go home. And I spent the rest of the night editing those five takes together. Next morning he came in and I played it to him and he was, literally blown away. He said, that's me. I said, that's you. That's you. And you, and that's you singing every word. Yeah, sure, I've made it out. It's like, it's got feel, it's got melody, and you are singing. You are not, rap, you know, talking your way through a song like you have been in a lot of other ones. You are now singing. And so he realized the power of the studio pretty much at that point. And he realized that, that, he, that he did have a voice and could go forward. So which brings me to, to Don't Change. And so when we, we're doing the vocal don't change. I, I bought in uh, a song called Union City Blue by Blondie. Are you familiar with that song? Yeah. 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 Union, Union City yeah, yeah, Blue. Yeah. yeah. And I, I played that to him a few times. Now, listen to this. Look what, what Deborah's doing. It's got a frantic beat, but she's just cruising over the top, almost paying no attention to the beat, just doing a flowing melody over a fast beat. This is what I want you to do with Don't Change. You know, yeah, pick up the timing for sure, but glide across the top. Just glide your way through it, you know, and that's what he did. And, and, yeah. that, and, that, and, that, and, and so it worked really well. And as I was mixing it, you know, the, at the end, of, you know, it was just me in the studio as usual uh, mixing and, and, you know, putting running orders together. But I was mixing Don't Change and getting it right. And as I was mixing the outro, this harmonic appeared. Going, yeah. or similar, and and I'm going. It just appeared because the mixture of the, the guitars and the keyboard together wasn't a, a line that was actually played. At that wow! Time. But the harmonics appeared, and Kirk was in the studio packing up his saxophones and his gear and stuff. And I said, Kirk, come in here, come in here. 
I said, and I played it to him. I said, can you hear that harmonic? He said, yeah, I can hear it. I said, can you go in and sing, don't change for me, don't change. Just follow that harmonic, but use the words don't change. And so that's how we got that that unique end on don't change, you know, that oh, long end. Yeah. That, yeah. And so, and then I was able to put that together. And so that was Shabu Shabar, got that out of the way. All right, uh, there is still a big chunk of that man's career to oh. talk about. And there's also the other thing that I want to do because a couple of people have said, were you and Brian actually in on the interview with Mark Opitz or did uh, he just free-range that without ah. you two? <laughs> so we're going to do, uh, to finish off the Mark Opitz thing after we've, uh, after we've done probably the next part, is we're going to actually hit him with, you know, some hard-hitting questions. Some hard-hitting questions. Some hard-hitting questions. And actually it'll be one of those things where here's the questions, answer the question, move on to the next one. Who's the biggest prick you worked exactly with? Exactly what I want to know. Yeah. Who was the most Who difficult the in the studio? prick. Because he talked in that interview about how good and accessible we were in the studio and how they yeah. you know, they learned their craft really easily. But there's got to be someone who was difficult. Oh, are you good in the studio? Are you? Are you? Oh, are you I'm, I'm better now than I used to be. Were you difficult? No, no. I just, you know, I just didn't really know what I was doing when I first started. Oh, okay. You know, it's sort of like you, you guided a lot, whereas now these days um, I'm got pretty good ears for uh, mixing stuff. Were and, you one of the one? Were you a singer who wanted to be like not? People looking at you when you're in studio. Studio, um, studio, yeah. and and, and oh. stage are so different. I like it a bit dark yep. in the studio. Um, Do you like your little corner so as you can just be? Yeah, normally you're in a little, you know, little booth. Little area, booth, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I prefer. But you know, in saying that, I, you know, you can sing in broad daylight too. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, okay. Sometimes it's a good vibe to have a little, you know, dim lighting and lovely, you know, and some 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 little uh, incense burning. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> little candles everywhere. Oh, here we go. You'll break, break into kumbaya in a moment. Kumbaya, gently, <laughs> gently. Or blowing in the wind. Or what was the puff the magic dragon? I'm waiting for. Played exclusively <laughs> on the clarinet, darling. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, thanks to Murcotts. Uh, we've, we've, uh, Thank you, Mark. We're coming back again, and uh, we've got two great guests for the next uh, oh. life of Brian. Oh, oh we goodness. keep getting all the big names. We Jeff. do. Thanks to Murcotts. One three hundred triple five five seven six. That's murcotts.edu.au. We will bring you um, one of the great oh. female rock and roll performers. One of the great rock and roll performers. Doesn't yeah. matter whether she's female or male. Yeah. Susie Quattro, also known as Pinky Tuscadero. Leather Tuscadero. Was it Leather Tuscadero? She was Leather. Oh, yeah, Pinky was. Yeah, Pinky was the other one. Pinky was the older sister. Right, Leather so she Tuscadero. She was Leather Leather. Hence the leather outfits and the whole oh, leather yeah. thing. So Susie's coming. Come on, yeah, Susie. As is Samuel Johnson, great Australian oh. actor. And uh, just a just great a, Australian. Have a hell of a nice bloke. He's done another in the series of his dear books. This one's yeah. Dear Mum for Mother's Day. You're in this one as oh, well. I'm in it. I've written a letter for it. Yep. yep. So it's uh, whatever you'd ask your mum uh, if you could if you could uh, write a letter to your mum. What would you ask her? And that's uh, the premise. So we'll talk to Samuel. Can you lend me ten bucks? Yes. <laughs> that was a permanent uh, permanent one with you and your mother. Mum, can I have some money? Murcots.edu.au one three hundred triple five five seven six. That's their number. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Life of Brian. We'll be back with Susie Q and Samuel Johnson. Oh, it's the all the S's next. Have week. you got a protest? Protest march to go to now? Yeah, I'm going to go All right, protest go um, about uh, no protesting about protesting and um, I don't know. I'll just work it out when I get there. All right. All right.